0: who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask you in advance to go ahead and forgive me. My voice is all but shot. Yesterday, I had the brilliant idea of asking my wife, why don't we take the kids to the park today? And when we went to the park, we showed up, we saw clouds of this yellow substance just invading the park. It invaded my soul, it feels like. And um, So my throat will be a little dry this morning, so please just bear with me and uh, we will get through this. If you got your Bible this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 12, but we're also going to be in Luke chapter 19. Now, in your bulletin, I'm not sure, I haven't looked at the bulletin, but there may be two sets of notes. There may be one set of notes that, that are from me and then one set of notes for the sermon that pastor was going to preach, okay? I'll go ahead and give you the heads up that one of these is better than the other, Okay? (laughs) So you're going to want to take pastor's notes and just kind of tuck them away for later when we get done here. But um, we're going to take the events uh, similar to what Pastor Justin had read from the book of Mark. But we're going to take the same event called the triumphal entry of Christ into the city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of John. But then we're going to take a little bit of the perspective of the, uh, the gospel of Luke, and we're going to kind of marry those two things together. But before we do that, I want, to, I want to give you a greater context for what is going on in this moment. Now, as we find Jesus in John chapter 12, Jesus is in the city of Bethany. He is staying at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, And Jesus has recently raised Lazarus back to life. And so they wanted Jesus to come home. They are are going to celebrate him with a dinner, and he's going to stay the night with them, all these kind of things. But this particular day is a Saturday, and it's the Saturday before a national holiday for the people of Israel. It's a holy week and a holy festival or a celebration that was called Passover, Now, most of you know this, but just in the off chance chance that that you don't, I'll kind of just unpack for you what that means. Thousands of years, even before Christ came, there was an event that happened when the people of Israel found themselves in bondage in the land of Egypt. There was a Pharaoh and he had enslaved them and he had just really given a heavy hand to the people of Israel. So God raises up a deliverer delivered by the name of Moses and God is going to, by the hand of Moses, he is going to deliver the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage so that they can become all that God has wanted them to become. And so As the events begun to unfold between Moses and Pharaoh, they contend with one another. Pharaoh doesn't want the people to go because that is his bread and butter, but the people of or or Moses wants to let them go so that they can be all that God has intended them to be. So they go back and forth, back and forth, they contend, and it reaches a fever pitch to the point where God gets to the place where he is just done with the Pharaoh. And so God, through the hand of Moses, descends nine plagues on the people of Israel, everything from uh, frogs to lice, everything in between, in order to kind of pry Pharaoh's grip off of the people of Israel. But as you know, through the nine plagues, it doesn't work. And so ultimately, God sends a tenth and a final plague to the people and the land of Egypt. God is gonna send the judgment of God. He is going to send death to the firstborn male child of every animal and every person that exists in the land of Egypt as judgment. But God goes to Moses and he says, but Moses, for your people, the people of Israel, if they want to avoid this judgment of God and preserve the lives of their sons, you need to follow these instructions. And he goes on to tell Moses that each family is to take a lamb without spot, without blemish, and they are to take that lamb into their home for a few days, and that lamb is to become part of their family. But on a certain night, they are to take a knife, an instrument, and they're to slit the, the neck of this animal. And they are to take the blood of this lamb, and they are to soak it in a sponge, and they are to spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their home. And when the judgment of God comes overnight, when God sees the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, the judgment of God will pass over their homes. And the judgment of God will not come, on the, the people of Israel heeded this advice, and they did that, and the judgment of God passed over them, but the people of Israel, including Pharaoh himself, lost many, many sons of their land. It was such a tragic moment that Pharaoh finally released the people of Israel to go. But for thousands of years following that event, every year for thousands of years, they had a holiday celebrating this Passover event. It was to commemorate what God had done, not only in the deliverance of the people, but the deliverance of themselves, that God would take his judgment and pass over them because he saw the blood of this lamb. And so every single year, even up to Jesus's day, this week of Passover was a national festival. And Jews from all over the world, literally all over the world, would descend into Jerusalem and they would come in and they would um, be given, uh, they would buy lambs for their household. And as that day approached on the day of Passover, there was an enormous celebration throughout all the land of Israel, but especially in the city of Jerusalem and thousands of families and heads of their family they would they would line up going into the temple in three different enormous groups and they would go to the priest in the temple and they would have that lamb that they had bought to represent their family and they would go to the priest and they would give that lamb to the priest and the priest would slit the throat of that lamb the blood would begin to pour out of the lamb and a priest would take a couplet and he would put it under the lamb and the cup would fill with blood and then he would take the cup and pass it to another priest who would pass it to another and another and another on down the line until it got to the high priest at the main altar area where the high priest would take the cup and he would throw it against the altar. Blood would fill the temple courts it would be, uh, it, we would find later in history that the temple courts itself has a very intricate um, uh, filtration system of, of irrigation and drainage and different things like that because of the amount of blood that was shed on this particular holiday. It was such an event that, that the people of Israel, they would have choirs that, that from dawn until twilight They would stand around the temple courts and they would sing and they would play their instruments and they would rotate one choir in and one choir out. It was such a spectacle, such an incredible event that Pontius Pilate would leave his home on the Mediterranean Sea and he would travel into the city of Jerusalem. This is why in the Gospels, when Jesus goes on trial, they don't have to take Jesus to Pontius Pilate because Pontius Pilate is already there for the Passover celebration. Pontius Pilate would erect a tower just outside of the temple so that he and his family could oversee the festivities because it was such an incredible moment. Every single year of commemoration, every minute it is said that the, the three different layers of, of people that would come in with their lambs and the priests would sacrifice, it's said that upwards of 40 lambs per minute were slaughtered throughout the entirety Of this day. When we find Jesus in John chapter 12, it is just a few days before all of this is gonna unfold for the people of Israel. Jesus on Saturday is at Bethany again with Lazarus. They're celebrating the raised life of Lazarus, and the Scripture picks up in John chapter 12. It's in your notes or on the screen. The Bible says this, and then the next day, which would be Sunday or what we have now dubbed Palm Sunday, The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. And just as it is written in the prophet Zechariah, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. But as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. Oh, how I wish today, Israel, that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. And your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because all of this is going to happen, people of Israel, because you did not recognize it. When God visited you, you did not understand what was going on when God visited you, and thus this destruction will befall you. Now, Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord. We thank you for this special Palm Sunday, all that it means to us, Lord. We ask you for the strengthening and the edification of your church today, literally here and all over the world, people who are watching And Lord, this morning we want to lift up our pastor to you and uh, we just want to pray for the healing touch of your spirit to touch his eyes. We want to pray, Lord, that the finger of God would touch him in such a powerful way that he would receive the fullness of healing for his eyes. That the pain would be mitigated and taken away. And we pray, Lord, for a quick recovery so that he can be back here with his church family. And so, Father, we thank you for his life. I thank you for this church family. Holy Spirit, I ask you here in this moment to come and do what I cannot do. Um, You are considered our teacher. And I pray, Lord, that you will teach the people of God specific things that they need to hear through your voice, which I have no capacity to help or understand, but you do because you know, and you're our great teacher. I pray for your strength to come. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen, and amen. Mm. Few things are more frustrating than feeling like you are misunderstood. Um, a few months ago, I was, uh, my family and I, Joy, my wife, and, and our family, we had gone to Gatlinburg and we had met up with my sister and her family and my mom and and her husband, and we were just kind of doing a getaway vacation in in Gatlinburg, so we rented this huge cabin, and it was amazing. We did everything that you do in Gatlinburg or Pigeon Forge. We did the stampede, and we went to the pirate show, which was amazing, except for the scantily clad mermaids. Uh, It was was a phenomenal, it was really a phenomenal uh, trip. And when every time that we go to Gatlinburg, at, at some point in the trip, we always drive up the mountain. You know, once you go through Gatlinburg, you can, you can kind of go on the top of the mountain, then down the other side into Cherokee. But um, uh, at one point this week, we decided that, that we were going to do that. And so we went up the mountain. And there is this place, if you've been there or ever uh, driven here, this, there's this place about halfway up the mountain. It's an enormous picnic area that's called the Chimneys. And if you've ever been there, like I said, it's, it's this huge picnic place. Uh, there are trees and there's foliage. It is a beautiful place. Any time of year that you go, it's just an incredible place. But alongside the, um, alongside the picnic area, there is, there is a, a, I don't know if you call it a large stream or a small river, but there's this body of water that's flowing like down the mountain. And, and you can go and kind of step out there and there are these enormous uh, boulders that are just all through the stream and you can go and kind of, you know, hop around on the stream and take incredible pictures, which we did, and, you know, do all the things that you do and let the kids play in the water and different things like that. But um, we went there and so we had, we had done our thing and um, we had decided that uh, it was about time to, to go a couple hours into it. and So we decided that we were going to leave. And um, I was one of the first people like headed to the car. You know, when you got a group of 15 people, you just kind of, if you don't go, nobody's going to go, you know? And so I decided, you know, I, I'll go ahead and start this caravan out. And so uh, uh, I started walking like, like kind of towards the car and I grabbed the hands of my two, uh, two of my daughters, my, my little ones, and, and I started walking towards the car with, with my wife and some other kids. The rest of the family was kind of like in a trail behind us, you know, some of them were still at the water putting their shoes on and different things. Um, And for whatever reason, as I was walking towards the vehicle, for whatever reason, I had my girl's hands and I kind of turned around and I saw a little boy who had fallen into the water about 30 yards that direction. And in the moment, I, I kind of panicked. Now, we had seen these little boys. There was a boy, he was probably six years old, and his older brother couldn't have been more than eight or nine. At the most, I would say 10 years old. And we had seen them earlier. They were like ping-ponging all over the boulders, and they're like little Spider-Men. They didn't have any shoes on. You know, I thought these, kid, you know, these kids are like little hillbillies jumping around and different things. And, you know, we had noticed them earlier. And so, so when I turned around, for whatever reason, I noticed that little boy, and, and I took my daughter's hands, and I just shoved them on joy, and I didn't say anything, and I just started running towards the little boy. And as I'm running towards the little boy, I start calling out, kid! Kid! I'm pointing, I'm running by my family, they're like carrying, I'm knocking things out of their hand on my way, they're like, what is this guy doing? And I'm literally saying, kid! And I go, and I finally get to the kid, and I'm not exactly sure what it was, but, but one of his legs, as he had fallen in, was, was wedged somehow either by a stick or a log or a rock or something like that. And his body was positioned in such a way that, that the water was rushing over his face. And he could lift his body up for a couple of seconds, but then the water would just rush. And I thought, if I don't get this kid out of the water, he's going to drown right here in, in front of all of us. And so I rush over, and the kid is uh, in the water, and I, I kind of jump down, and, and I'm trying to pull the kid up. And thankfully, my nephew, Blake, he's, uh, he's probably 17, but he is just a huge kid. He's like 6'6", 200-pound. He's just brute strength. And I was like, thank God, because there ain't no way, you know? And, and so my, my nephew comes, and, and he grabs one arm, and I grab another arm. But we're constantly, like, slipping and falling because our hands are wet. We're nervous. The kid is wet. We're falling. In, I mean, just all kind of stuff. It was such chaos. Now, keep in mind, this is all transpiring in, like, 40 seconds, right? All of this happens in, like, less than a minute. And so I finally, I go to the kid, and we, we, we start to pull him out. He falls in again. And, we, and I just got to the point I was, I was exasperated. And I thought to myself in the moment, I said, I've got to get this kid out and if it breaks his leg, it breaks his leg. But I've got to get the kid out, you know? And so I reached down and I grab one of his arms and I put the other arm like up under his armpit. And as I go to pull him out, his brother is on a rock like 10 feet away. And his brother, who's like nine, is screaming at me. He's saying, hey, that's my brother! What are you you doing? That's my brother. And I'm like, what the heck do you think I'm doing? I'm saving your brother's life. Frustrated. And so like all this frustration just mounts up and I'm like, you know, I pull the kid up. He goes, flying through the tree. No, I'm kidding. Um, I pull the kid up and I am like, I am like shook. I mean, it wasn't, I wouldn't consider it like traumatic, but I was shook to the core. I was, I was nervous, I was shaking. I got the kid out, I just kinda kneeled down, and I, you know, he's, he's crying, I'm about to cry, we're shaking, and I'm like, buddy, we're, we're gonna get you to mom and dad, you're gonna, you're gonna be fine, you know? Mom and dad come bebopping along a couple minutes, they are like, what's going on, what are you doing? You know, talking to my kid, and I'm like, for the love of God, just, you know? Take your kid and go home, you know? Um, and, and mind you, this is, not, this is not like a heroic moment for me, okay? This wasn't like, uh, you know, courage swelled my lungs and I just rushed up. This was fear in action is what this was. As a matter of fact, I got up, when I was done, I, I looked down and I realized my pants were wet. And I was like, I don't know if it's from the water or if I wet myself, you know? Because, but I just went with it, I was like, it is what it is, it's done now, you know? And uh, I remember walking back to the car, and like everybody in the family was just like dead silent because of what had just transpired. And I remember getting in the car, and Joy was like, "Are you okay?" And and I said, "I'm okay, but I'm like I'm frustrated." And she's like, why are you frustrated? I said, because nobody understood what was going on in the moment. Why, why were me and Blake the only people that understood what was going on? The kid didn't understand, the parents didn't understand, y'all didn't understand. Why? I feel so frustrated in this moment. And there was really no result to that. I just lived out in the frustration. The reality is, is that all of us at one time or another, we feel like we've been misunderstood for one reason or another. When we approach the text here in John chapter 12. There is massive misunderstanding that is going on about all the events that are transpiring before the thousands of people that are standing right there. I want you to keep in mind, as Jesus is making this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, God is very much at work in this moment. He's at work, he is fulfilling prophecy He is drawing attention to certain things. Words are being uttered. There is incredible symbolism. There are all these things. The activity of God is like rampant in this moment. But the people of God, the people that are there are grossly misunderstanding or misinterpreting everything that's going on. Think about the people. We learn from church historians that it is very likely that upwards of 2 million people would have descended into Jerusalem during the week of Passover. Two million people would have been there. And it was such a multitude, the Bible uses the word, a great multitude had left the city gates and they had come out to where Jesus was to welcome him. There could have been thousands of people along this little pathway that Jesus was riding on the donkey. There could have been thousands of people that were there. There were so many people in that that in the scripture, uh, the the religious leaders take notice of it. Because during this week of religious activity, the spotlight's supposed to be on them, right? They're the ones making the sacrifice. They're the ones working late hours. They're the ones doing all the dirty work. But all of a sudden, the attention has shifted from them to this outsider from Galilee who is not even in the temple courts. They make this statement, they say, look, they're talking to one another, they're frustrated in the moment, they say, look, the entire world has gone after him. So we find that there are a lot of people that had gone out to meet with Jesus as he is making this triumphal entry, but this is what we discover, that these people are not anticipating an eternal king, an eternal Messiah that is gonna save them eternally, They are looking for a king that is going to save them of their earthly struggles. They misunderstand greatly what's going on. They're so celebratory. They're so excited. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, come be our king and deliver us from this Roman oppression. Rip these bondages off of us. So that we can live out and be everything that God has called us to be. And Jesus stands and he says, you, you grossly misunderstand. I'm not here to deliver you from your earthly situation. I'm, I'm here to deliver you from your eternal damnation. Amen. And the work of God is evident and it's all around. And there's so many things pointing to this, but you're completely missing the point of what's going on. The donkey. The donkey. The donkey. You ever notice how often God uses donkeys to communicate things? The donkey, though he isn't speaking in in this text, the donkey is mightily being used by God. I know that oftentimes when we think of donkeys, um, we do not associate them with royalty. Um, We kind of like have this this hierarchy. We say, um, you know, stallions or horses and then... You know, maybe cows and dogs and then donkeys and then cats, you know, way down there. But we have like this hierarchy of things, but we have this, this thing laid out, and donkeys are just kind of like down here. They're like, ah, oh, if you got a donkey, I guess you can use a donkey. But what we understand through, through ancient literature is that oftentimes donkeys were viewed as a symbol of royalty, Listen to me, when a king would leave his land and he would go into a new city or a new countryside, when he would go to visit another group of people, he would either ride on one of two things. He would either ride on a donkey. And if he rode on a donkey with the people who saw the king coming, they would be able to identify him and say, he is riding a vessel of peace. He comes in peace. Peace. But if that king shows up on a stallion, they understand that this king isn't coming for peace. This king is coming to make war. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating. The, the, the author of this, the apostle John, the beloved, the revelator, he writes in this text and he writes in the book of Revelation. We see Jesus twice in John's writings that Jesus is writing on something. And the first time we see Jesus riding as a vessel, he is riding on a vessel of peace on a donkey. But the second time that we see Jesus, he's not on a vessel of peace, he's on a vessel of war. Saw him on a white stallion and he comes to make war with the kings of the earth. And so we understand that, that even in this moment that the donkey is symbolic of the royalty of Christ, but also that Jesus is coming to bring peace between God and man. When you look uh, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, uh, there are several instances, but uh, in in the instance of Jacob and Esau, the two brothers that hated one another, they were at war with one another. Later in their life, when when they meet up to hopefully reconcile, the Bible says that Jacob and all of his wealth that he saddled donkeys with gifts of peace. And he sent the donkeys before him to his brother Esau, hoping that it would appease the wrath of Esau. And in this moment, we see Jesus, who is described, by the way, as the gift of God that leads to eternal life. We see the gift of God, the peace of God, being given to God as a gift to hopefully appease the wrath of God against all humankind. But even in this, they totally miss it. They totally, they completely misunderstand and misinterpret what's going on. They get these palm branches and they start waving, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, all hail King Jesus waving their branches, and they're singing this psalm, and they don't even realize that the very words that they're uttering are a messianic psalm. Not about a king who's coming in fleshly form to take over a government, but as a messiah who's coming to save their people from an eternal oppression. But even the words of their mouth, they misunderstand everything that's going on. Now, as fascinating as it seems that the, the disciples, like not much less the people, but the inner core of Jesus' people, are misunderstanding or misinterpreting or just totally missing what's going on. It's, it's fascinating to consider these men have been with Jesus For the past couple of years, Jesus has done incredible miracles. Himself, he has at least three times, if not four or five, he has declared that he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. He is going to die, and he is going to be resurrected. They are literally, two of the disciples, as a matter of fact, as Pastor Justin just read, two of the disciples actually fulfilled the prophecy about the donkey. They went and got the animal and brought it back to him, and they still didn't understand what was going on. You've got all these things swirling, Around And as if that wasn't enough, what we find from biblical and secular scholars is that perhaps on this Palm Sunday, every single year, not just this particular Palm Sunday, but every single Sunday before the Passover, there was an event that would transpire called the procession of the lambs. Now, you got to understand that, as I said earlier, when people would descend, sometimes upwards of two million people would come into Jerusalem. And for every household represented, there had to be a lamb bought for that household for the sacrifice to be received. And what we find when you kind of do the math and everything, you can find that during any given Passover, that somewhere between 20,000 lambs and 200,000 lambs would be sacrificed on the day of Passover. Well, if you're going to have that many lambs, you got to get them somewhere. you got to get the lambs somewhere. And which brings us to this event, which we call the procession of the lambs. It's believed that lambs were born and bred in the hill country. They were born in a town called Bethlehem. They were born for the singular purpose of sacrifice. And on this Sunday, it's believed that all of these shepherds from the land of Bethlehem would begin to usher in all of these thousands of lambs on the same day that Jesus, the lamb, is proceeding into Israel. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine that the crowds are flooding onto this path and they are crying out, Hosanna, Jesus is riding onto a donkey. But perhaps it's not just Jesus, the lamb of God, who's riding on a donkey, but it's thousands of lambs that are surrounding him and the disciples are still missing the symbolism of what's going on. That not only are we about to sacrifice these lambs for God, but this is the lamb of God, which will eliminate the need for any more sacrifices to come. The disciples miss it in this moment. And here's what's fascinating. Some of them surely, not all of them, but some of them surely, were at the side of John the Baptist when John was baptizing people in the beginning. And as John sees Jesus walk over the hill crest, John stops what he's doing cries out, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Surely some of these disciples heard those words from John, but as they see the Lamb of God going in for sacrifice, they absolutely misinterpret what is going on. And I got to ask myself, who can be that dumb, right? Right? Like, who is so dense to miss all of that? And then I think about my life. (laughs) And I quietly slip up my hand and say, I am that dense to miss the activity of God or to misunderstand what God is doing in a moment. You see, oftentimes, like in life, when we are misunderstanding what God is doing, we don't fully get the big picture or understand what's going on until after everything has already happened. Just a, a, a few verses down, the scripture, as it talks about all this procession, all this, this glorious activity going on on this triumphal entry, John writes this. He says, Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they Remembered. And the crazy thing is, if we're being completely honest, is that this seems to be a very common thread through the life of most believers. Like, okay, maybe not you, definitely me, and definitely a lot of men and women in this book. You've got men and women like Abraham and Sarah who understand that God is doing something but they misinterpret what God is doing or how God is going to accomplish this thing. And so they take matters into their own hands and they have Abraham sleep with another woman to conceive a child. You've got Jonah who shows up in the land of Nineveh and he hates the Ninevites. And in his mind, God's motive should be to utterly decimate this people from the the face of the earth, erase them from history, but he misunderstands. That God is not coming to judge, but God is coming to be merciful. That God's perspective is not just to pour out wrath, but he wants to redeem. But Jonah, in the events of Jonah's life, the Bible says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah multiple times. The man has been swallowed by an animal and spit out and lived to tell about it. Clearly seeing the sovereign work of God and utterly missing what is going on in the moment. The Pharisees had this mindset that God is all about his law, his law, his law, when ultimately he's really about his love, his love, his love. But they utterly miss the point of what God is trying to accomplish. Lazarus, as he is raised from the dead, Mary and Martha, they run out to meet Jesus after Lazarus has died. And they say these words, they say, Jesus, if you had only been here, our brother would not have died. If you had only been here. Jesus would take a step back, and he would say, yeah, I could have come, and I could have done this awesome miracle of healing, and Lazarus would have never died, but I'm about to do a glorious miracle. And raise him back to life. It will be the crescendo of my earthly physical healing ministry. I will do this in a moment. And you are brokenhearted. You're frustrated. You're discouraged. And I understand that. But you have to understand that I'm doing something beyond what you can comprehend in this moment. I mean, think about your life and my life. Think about these great United States over the past year. How many people have we seen? Christians utterly misunderstand what God is trying to accomplish. How many people have we seen say, well, God is doing this through the pandemic, or God is not doing this, or this is not of God, or this is of God, or or, this is that. How many different perspectives have we seen about the election? How many Christians utterly misunderstood what God was trying to do? And and furthermore, how many Christians blamed God when it didn't turn out the way that they wanted it to turn out? Dangerous. Dangerous territory for us to be in, which leads me to, to the point I'm trying to make, that we must be a people, that when the activity of God is swirling around us, number one, we don't miss it, but number two, we interpret it in the proper way. Because I'm gonna say you this, as believers, even as sons and daughters of God, when we misunderstand what God is doing in a given situation, it can lead us to some very dangerous circumstances if we don't get a grip on what is really going on. So let me just read to you a couple of things that, it, that can transpire through misunderstanding. Number one, misunderstanding God has the potential to breed inside of us resistance to God. Peter comes, are you guys with me? Follow, okay, Peter just a couple of chapters later in John, Peter comes to Jesus and Jesus begins to wash the feet of Peter. God is washing the feet of a man. And Peter stands back and he says, whoa, what are you doing? Peter's misunderstanding the moment. He says, no, 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 no. You're not gonna wash my feet. I'll wash your feet. And Jesus would go on to say later, he would say this, he would say, Peter, what I am doing, you do not understand right now. But afterwards, you will understand. But see, Peter didn't understand the situation, so he jumped to a conclusion, right? He jumped to a conclusion before the situation had unfolded for him to understand. It's kind of like, have you guys ever seen Bob Ross? Do you know who I'm talking about when I say that? He was incredible. He didn't have a moulet, but he had an awesome afro, right? He had an amazing afro. He's the painter guy, if you don't know who I'm talking about. And... A couple of months ago, my wife and I, we were, we were spending some time with some friends, and for whatever reason, we were watching TV, and Bob Ross ended up on the TV. And all four of us just found ourselves just mesmerized. Like, man, this guy's <laughs> incredible, right? It's like hypnotic. What's going on in this moment? And one of our friends was watching. He had painted like this tool shed in this beautiful uh, snow bliss field, and there were, there were mountains in the background and trees in the background, and, and she, said, she said, oh, golly, that is just perfect, and then all of a sudden, Bob Ross takes his brush, and he puts a black mark right beside the tool shed, and our friend freaks out. She said, what are you doing? It was perfect. It was perfect, and you ruined it. She sat there for about 13 seconds and she said, oh, but he didn't ruin it. He made it better than it was before. Because what she didn't understand was that she had just jumped to a conclusion thinking that this master artist is going to ruin a masterpiece with a stroke of the brush without taking that stroke and making it something more than it was ever intended to be. Oftentimes we can do that in relationship with the Lord. Father, what are you doing? we misunderstand, and if we're not careful, it can lead us to a place where we begin to jump to conclusions and we say, whoa, whoa, whoa Lord, I, I don't know about this. Hold on, let me, let me interject here. Let me intervene. Let me give you some advice on what you should do, and let me just tell you, I've done that, and it never works out well for me. For whatever reason, he doesn't listen to my advice, okay? But I'm telling you, this, the point of what I'm trying to say is this, is that we must be a patient people, When the activity of God is all about us, we must be a patient people. We're we're filled with faith, expecting the best, but not jumping to conclusions, assuming that God has ruined what he is actually creating. So if we're not careful, it can lead us to a place of resistance. Number two, misunderstanding. Can breed within us bitterness. We see this in the life of Israel. After the original Passover, Moses has delivered the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. They're going through the wilderness. And the Bible, time and time again for 40 years, an entire generation dies off because the people held bitterness within their heart. And time and time and time again, they would slap God in the face. And they would say, Lord, why did you bring us out here? Send us back to Egypt so that we can at least die with our stomachs full and they had developed a sense of bitterness because they did not understand what God was trying to do with them. The reality for me and for you, this is often a situation that has the potential to happen that we don't always like to talk about. Do you realize that most people who have some level of bitterness or frustration or anger towards God Oftentimes, they will live an entire lifetime unspoken of this frustration and over these issues because they feel like they lack faith or they are not handling this the proper way. When all the time going, God always sees what's going on in the heart, whether we speak it or not. And listen to me, I can, I can understand the frustration that can build up when we don't understand things that God is trying to do. I understand when I see friends who who lose a child prematurely. I can understand when I see somebody who is so faithful to serve the Lord, they're so faithful to give, they are so generous, but it seems like they can never land a solid job and keep going and keep going. I can understand when a person says, "I, I thought that 10 years ago, God gave me this promise. I could have sworn to you, God gave me this promise, but it's yet to be fulfilled. I can understand how a sense of bitterness or frustration or mi- because of my misunderstanding can be geared towards the Lord. And listen to me, I'm gonna say on some level, that's probably human, a human emotion for us to have, right? You can't tell me that Job, when he lost all of his children and everything that he had, didn't have thoughts or feelings of frustration or bitterness towards the Lord. The difference is simply this. Job chose not to nurture his bitterness and his frustration. He chose to process it and to get it out before the Lord and to allow God to deal with him, which ironically did not take Job to a point of vindication, but it took Job to a point of repentance for this reason, because he misunderstood what God was trying to do in that moment. So it can lead to bitterness. Let me just say this, that I think when, when, when we think about God, and the theological perspective that we have about God's character, about how God operates, about the things God will do or the things God won't do, I'm going to tell you that if you have an improper theology about God, what God will do or what God won't do, it will quickly lead you to a place of bitterness when he doesn't do what you think he should have done. Does that make sense? Uh, you know, there, and, and listen, I'm going to tell you that the Christian music industry isn't helping us very much in this regard either because the, the Christian music industry is putting out songs that talk about how God may bend us, but God will never break us. No, God will break us. God will break us. It's not for, for harm's sake, it's for a greater good, but when we have a theological perspective that God will, never, God will never fail me, God will never let me down. If you think that you are not gonna be disappointed by God at some point in your life, I don't even know, like I don't even know what to say. The reality is that God is going to disappoint but it's not because he's wrong. It's because oftentimes we haven't taken the steps back to gain a perspective and understand what he is ultimately trying to do. So if we're not careful, our our improper theology can lead us to a place where we're bitter against what God has done or what God has not done in our lives. Number three, uh, misunderstanding God can breed confusion in our lives. We see this as Jesus leaves Gethsemane, he goes to the cross, what happens to the disciples? They scatter. They scattered. They don't know what's going on. There's mass confusion. Some are in hiding. Some have just utterly run away. Peter is still following Jesus, but he's at a distance because he doesn't really understand everything that's going on. It can lead to a mass place of confusion. And let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with questioning what God is up to. There's nothing wrong with questioning why God did or why God didn't or or anything like that. The point of what I'm trying to say is that we must process our misunderstanding of what God's doing with him and question it, but don't camp in it. Does that make sense? And, and foster it, and because and it, it can lead to confusion. Number four, misunderstanding God can, can breed discontentment. The people of Israel, once they had come out of the wilderness and they had begun to inherit their promised land we find that they become so discontent with what God is doing in the lives of their people, how things haven't unfolded the way that they felt like they should have unfolded. And so the people of Israel go before the Lord, they go to the prophet, and they say, we are so sick of being treated like this, we are so tired of things not going our way, we're so frustrated with all of this. We know what the remedy is. We want, like the other nations of the world, for God to raise up for us a king. In the midst of what's going on, God is trying to be their king. God is trying to create a distinct people that are different from all the other peoples of all the other lands. But the discontentment that settles within the people of Israel is saying, no, God being our king is not enough. We want to be like the people from the other lands. God, would you raise us up a king? And I'll tell you this, there's a trouble with, with discontentment in our souls that at one time or another, we will all wrestle with because this is a reality. In this example right here, what we find, Gorman said something to this effect. He said that what we find in this situation where the people of Israel are demanding that God give them a king, is that oftentimes the judgment of God is seen in when God gives us what we ask for. We've seen our nation get to a place of discontentment. Our nation has gotten to a place where the soul of America is no longer settled to have God as her king. And so, in the place of God, we have erected idols. And we have said, God, it's not enough that you be our king. We want idols like the other lands. And to some degree, God is giving us what we want. To some degree, God is giving us what we want. And so, there is major disparity when it comes to the idea of misunderstanding God that leads to discontentment. Number five and finally is this, is that misunderstanding God can bring, breed carnality. We see this in the life of Moses, the man of God, the incredible man of God. As I'm writing these words, I'm like struggling to say, Lord, I don't wanna use Moses as a negative example. He is such a man of God. The Bible says that, that besides Christ, there was no man ever lived that was greater than Moses. And, and as, I, as I struggled to make this, but there is a reality that the mistake that Moses made was given to us to be an example, to serve us in such a way that we will understand that when we misunderstand what God is doing and frustration abounds in our soul, if we're not careful, we can act out in carnality just as Moses did when he struck the rock after God had specifically told him not to. And as a result of that, Moses, after all the plagues and all the miracles and the commandments and the law of God and the mountain of God and going for 40 years, an entire generation through the wilderness to get to this place called the promised land, God takes him on the hill of the promised land and says, Moses, because of your carnality in this moment, you will not receive the inheritance that you have been promised. And so there are some things that we need to be aware of when the activity of God is among us so that we don't misunderstand what God is doing. Now, really quickly, let me just mention to you a couple of things that will help us to understand what God is doing, not only like in the nation or in the church, but in our families and in our lives as individuals. The reality is this, is that sometimes God will work in mystery and sometimes God will not reveal things to us and that's beyond our control. But our job is to posture ourselves in a place, to position ourselves in a place where we can understand to the greatest level that we can understand. We must posture our hearts and position ourselves in such a place and we do that in just a couple of ways. Number one is this, by camping out in the word of God. What does the word of God say about this situation? Because listen to me say this, it is is not enough for us just to know the will of God. Understand that we do entire conferences in Christian culture, right? And we'll have things like, there there will be seminars and and conferences, and it'll be like, if you want to learn how to pray, go to this room. And if you want to learn the will of God for your life, go to this room. This room will be vacant. This room will be overflowing because people just want to know the will of God. But the reality is that you can know the will of God but still misinterpret the ways of God. You can misunderstand what God is doing even if you know the will of God that's going on. So the word of God shapes us and it helps us to understand his character, what he does sometimes, what he does not do sometimes. It helps us and as we camp in God's word, he reveals so much to us about what's going on in these situation. Number two, we need to camp out in the counsel of God. What is the spirit of God saying about this issue? Time and time again in 1 and 2 Samuel, we see King David, the man of God, the man that was after God's own heart. Time and time again, over nine times in two books of scripture, the Bible says that David goes and he inquires of the Lord, Father, what do I do in this situation? God, what are you doing right now? Lord, I inquire of you, share with me what is going on. And every time the Bible says that the Lord answered David and revealed to him what's going on. So we've got to stay in the counsel of God. Listen to me say this just just real quickly. I know that in such a chaotic moment in American history, probably in your life and, and in my life as well, that it can be so difficult to hear that still small voice in order to understand, Lord, what is really going on in this moment. It can be so chaotic because we're hearing all of these other voices. And all these other voices are on megaphones. But the still small voice of God is whispering. But we have to position ourselves in the presence of God to be able to hear the counsel of God. Um, I was sharing with our Wednesday night crew a couple of months ago, I, um, in the mornings, I don't drink, I used to drink coffee, I don't drink coffee anymore. Um, I drink um, breakfast tea. Right, And you're wanting to laugh right now, right? I, I get that. Because some of my friends will make fun of me, right? They're like, you drink tea in the mornings? And I'm like, well, you drink tea for lunch and for dinner, so you're a hypocrite. Um, but <laughs> I drink hot tea in the morning because I like it. And what I noticed about the tea for so long, what I would do is I would you know, you get your cup and you get it to a boiling point and then you take your tea bag and, and what do you do? Right, you start to dip it in the cup, right? And all of a sudden, you see it doing its thing, and then you know you gotta sit there for three to five minutes and kind of continuously dip, dip, dip. And then at a certain point, after the three to five minutes are up, then you're supposed to get like a spoon and and wrap up the tea bag and squeeze out all the goodness and juiciness and, into the cup. And then finally, you can throw it away and wash your dish and all this kind of stuff. And then you can enjoy your tea. But you know what? What I've learned in the recent past, very re- recent past, is that I can simply get my cup of hot water ready and i can take the tea bag and i can just drop it in and guess what happens guess what happens the same dang thing but listen for years i've been working uh, working waiting for the result Working, minute after minute, year after year, working. When in reality, I could have just taken the bag and Now, what happens when I dip it or what happens when I drop it is the same thing. There is a reaction between the tea and the water. The water begins to go through the tea bag and the herbs from the tea bag begin to go into the water and there's this transfusion that happens. There is this exchange that happens to give a final product that is joyous goodness. Yeah. And here's the thing that I've learned. I don't have to work for it. I can just drop it and let it go. I think in prayer, I think, I think my disposition is towards works. I've got to do the right thing. I've got to say the right thing. I've got to pray the right thing. And I'm all about systematic prayer. I have lists upon lists, okay? I'm all about getting through and and weeding down. But can I tell you, when it comes to hearing that still, small voice, it's very rare that I'm hearing the voice as I'm speaking. But it's most often that I hear the voice when I just plop myself down. And I let that natural transfusion begin to happen between my spirit and his spirit and I begin to experience God in a different way than what I did when I was doing all the work to hear from him. I think we've got to get back to a place where we remember that sometimes when it comes to hearing the voice of God, we've got to quiet our souls and just sit. Bob in the water, just sit. Let your transfusion happen and hear and understand what the Spirit of the Lord is doing. Number three. In order to understand what God is doing, oftentimes we we must be a people who embrace the church of God. I think a question that is probably more neglected than any of this stuff that we're talking about is this question, what are my spiritual leaders saying about this concern? What are my spiritual leaders? Not spiritual leaders in another country or in another state. What are the spiritual leaders who know me? What are they saying concerning this situation? Paul said this. He said, he, that Jesus gave, the word gave to the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity and the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, listen to this, so that we may no longer be children. Listen, God did not give us spiritual leaders to lord over us and to beat us down when we do wrong. God gave us spiritual leaders to lift us up and to edify us and to mature us and to lead us just as a good shepherd doesn't force his flock. A good shepherd leads his flock and they give wisdom and they give good advice to their flock because the shepherd is never as concerned about themselves as they are for the sheep. But how often do we just kind of hop over this one without understanding what are my spiritual leaders saying concerning this situation? Number four, the people of God, very closely tied to the church of God. The question that we ask is, what are my wise and godly friends telling me concerning this situation? I'll tell you this story really quickly. And we're almost done. When my, my family and I, we have been at Christian Life in almost 10 years. This is our 10th year at Christian Life. It blows my mind. We only had two kids when we came. We got like 47 now. It's crazy what God will do. In a, in a short amount of time. Um, I struggled. I probably went through the most severe depression that I had ever gone through in my life, even up to this point. During the spring and summer that my family and I moved to Columbia, and this is why. We had served in another church for nine years, and the church had gone through just atrocious, just all kind of stuff. And I, my, my soul was so committed to the people there. I, I, I felt so loyal to the people. I felt like I could not abandon them. To leave would be dishonorable and, and all these kind of things. And I fasted and I prayed and I sought the Lord, but I was in the, the darkest place of my entire life, even uh, up to this point. And I remember that everything that I would read, the things that I was interpreting, I I could understand. I knew that God was at work. I could see the hand of God at work. You guys, I could stand here and tell you just, even in just this singular event, story after story after story, where I could see the handwriting on the wall of what God was trying to do. But there was something in me where I felt like I would be so disloyal and dishonorable if I were to leave those people and go to another people. And I'll never forget one time I was, uh, I was on the golf course with my brother-in-law. And, and I don't say this out of, out of, I don't even know, out of a bad place. I say this because this is where my heart was. There were, there were two different times in the interview process where I, I turned down the offer to come to Christian Life, twice. And to even utter those words grieves my soul right now. But there were two different times. And I remember one time I had just gotten off the phone, I was on the golf course with my brother-in-law. And I had gotten off the course, it was the second time that I had said no. I hung up the phone and I looked at my brother-in-law and I said, bro, I think I may have just made the worst mistake of my life. And he looked at me and he said, yep. (laughs) And he said, I'll tee off. And he (laughs) called. When I look back and I went back and I documented every single thing, do you realize that every person, every godly, wise friend, every person that I trusted their voice in my life, every single one of them, eight different individuals, during that season, every one of them were saying, you have to go. You have to go. I didn't want to hear it, but I needed to hear it. And thank God, ultimately, I'm like a donkey myself. Thankfully, God got me to the place where I was willing to go. And I'm so thankful for that. But I'm gonna tell you this, if I would not have heeded the voice of the wise, the wise counsel that God had placed in my life, I may have misunderstood and missed out on what God wanted to do even today. And I'm so thankful that God brought us to this place. So I encourage you, seek out wise counsel from friends. Number five and finally is this, is that we must pursue the perspective of God as situations unfold we must ask ourselves, am I seeing this situation through an eternal lens? If the people at Passover would have asked this simple question, there would have been a very different result. This question is necessary because God reveals something about himself through the prophet Isaiah when he says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And you've heard pastors say this isn't like just a different type of thinking. This is otherworldly thinking. This is eternal perspective thinking that God has that it's difficult for us to gain. And so as we go through life, as we see the activity of God to not misunderstand what he's doing, we've got to get ourselves to a place where we view things through an eternal perspective. Joseph was able to see this through the trash that Joseph, Joseph, I almost cussed last time when I was talking about shibboleth, and now I don't know what I just said just now, Joseph sees this unfold in his life as he goes through the worst situation that he could ever even imagine. But at the end of it and on the other side of it, Joseph sees it with an eternal perspective. And he says, that which the enemy meant for evil, God intended for good. And listen to me, I don't understand why God allows some things to happen. I don't understand it but there's gotta be a recalibration of my soul where I say, Lord, I don't understand it in the earth and I'm trying to understand it from eternal, but Lord, I need your help so I don't misunderstand what you're doing in this moment. The reality is this, is that though we oftentimes misunderstand the activity of God, every time what is being done whether we realize it or not, a misinterpret misunderstanding misunderstand it or not, ultimately, it is for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Listen to me, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is eternal perspective thinking. Paul would write to the Romans, he would say, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. What is Paul saying? He's saying, stop thinking just about your momentary sufferings. Take a step back and view this in the light of eternity because in the light of eternity, nothing compares to the glory that's coming for those who love God. And so we wrap up here, we wrap up here. I'm gonna go ahead and ask you to stand with me here for a moment. Our our ministry team, they're gonna go ahead and start moving. You guys know the drill. They're gonna go out this door and if you wanna meet them out this door or out the other, they will be glad to pray with you. Um, if you are watching online and you need prayer, we wanna encourage you. There's a number on the screen. Please call it. We wanna make sure that we have an opportunity to pray for you. But, I want to to close with, with just this simple, simple thought. That part of the danger in misunderstanding the activity of God is not only to misunderstand, but if we're not careful, it's to miss what he wants to do. Not just misunderstand what he's doing, but altogether miss out on what God is doing. Jesus laments over the people of Jerusalem, and he says this. He says, all of this is happening because you did not recognize it. You did not understand it when God had come to visit. And church family, I just, wanna, I just want to say this. I don't, there are so many of you, you're beautiful, but I don't know you. There are so many of you that I'm sure are going through very frustrating situations where you're not understanding what God's going on. Uh, I'm sure there's, there's tremendous confusion at times when we see God doing things or, or not doing things. I don't know what God is doing on a micro level in your life or what needs to be prayed through or worked through or anything like that. But I'll tell you, I know what God is doing on a macro level. On a macro level, for those who are, who are listening that, that are teetering their relationship with God, that have walked away, that have gone through this process of deconstruction, that have never come to saving faith in Christ, I'm telling you in this moment, I emphatically and and without question can make the statement that I know what God is doing. He is drawing you by His Spirit to come. And I would simply say this as, as just a person, just as somebody who cares, Please do not miss the visitation of the Lord when he comes. And listen to me say this. We are experiencing a visitation of the presence of God in a very special way at this church. I plead with you. Don't run out on an opportunity to make things right with God because you have simply misunderstood the ways of God. He is the Father. He doesn't want us operating in misunderstanding, mis- uh, confusion or anything like that. He wants to settle things, but he needs your part to come and not miss out on the visitation so that he can do what he wants to do. And for those of us who are walking the, with the Lord, I don't know what's going on on a, on a micro level, but on a macro level, I do know this, he's calling us deeper. Not to just understand the will of God, but to understand the ways of God, to understand the heart of God, to understand the motives of God draw deeper to a place of intimacy and fulfillment. I promise you, this is what he's doing. Father, today I thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. I thank you, Father, that you are so faithful and you're so true to us. I thank you for these events leading up to Passover on Holy Week as we see Jesus' triumphal entry as the Lamb of God that's gonna be slain before the foundation of the world to forgive us of our sins. I'm thankful for this picture. I'm thankful for this reminder, but I pray for every one of us, Lord, that it will be more than just a reminder, that it will be a fresh understanding of what the spirit of the Lord is doing inside of us and through the blood of Christ. I pray your blessing over your people today. We ask you to bring our pastor back to us next week for a celebration Easter Sunday, because we're reminded today that though Jesus went into Jerusalem to be slain, That Sunday's coming, and he will be our resurrected Lord, and we bless him for it in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen.